0: And climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This is Democracy Now! This is Democracy Now!, I'm Amy Goodman, we're outside the plenary, the foreign minister of Egypt has just gotten into his car, they have just driven off, but there are hundreds of activists that have just come from a people's plenary that have gathered outside the plenary. They're from countries all over the world, as you hear them chanting, fighting for justice. climate justice activists protest in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, calling on world leaders to do more to address the climate crisis, demanding wealthy nations pay climate reparations. We'll spend the hour with indigenous land defenders from Venezuela, Guatemala, Mexico, the United States, and Canada.
1: Despite the fact that protest is criminalized in Egypt, we've been able to take over the COP venue and spaces to call to action. No more fossil fuels, get big polluters out, respect indigenous rights, look at missing and murdered indigenous women and the connections to our lands and territories and the fossil fuel industry, and really uplift the struggle and the voices and the power that our communities have in advocating for solutions that are best for us best for the people and best for the
0: planet. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, from the U.N. Climate Summit. The Republican Party has won control of the House of Representatives, despite a stronger-than-expected showing by Democrats in the midterm elections. After more than a week of vote counting and with six races still too close to call, Republicans Wednesday captured their 218th House seat. Just enough for a narrow majority. A spokesperson for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said the Democratic House Speaker will address her future plans later today. Meanwhile, Republican Senator Mitch McConnell has beaten back a challenge from Florida Senator Rick Scott and was reelected Senate Minority Leader on Wednesday. The Senate has advanced a bill to codify marriage equality into federal law. On Wednesday, 12 Republican senators joined all 50 members of the Democratic caucus to end debate on the Respect for Marriage Act, setting up final votes in the House and Senate before the start of the new Congress in January. On Wednesday, Wisconsin Democrat Tammy Baldwin, the first openly gay person elected to the Senate, spoke in favor of the legislation, warning Justice Clarence Thomas is pushing the Supreme Court's conservative majority to revisit landmark rulings on the constitutional right of all people to marry. In his opinion, Justice Thomas explicitly said that the rationale used to
1: overturn Roe v. Wade should be used to overturn cases establishing rights to contraception, same-sex consensual relations and same-sex marriage. He was essentially providing an open invitation to litigators across the country to bring their cases to the court, inevitably instilling fear among millions of Americans. The Supreme Court should not be in a position to undermine the stability of families with a stroke of the pen.
0: In Iran, women and youth-led protests continue two months after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini while in police custody. Crackdowns on the mobilizations are also intensifying. On Tuesday, police opened fire on protesters inside a metro station in Tehran. In other parts of Iran, as many as 15 people were killed Wednesday night. Some of the deaths were attributed to gunmen on motorcycles. Iran's blame terrorists, though some local witnesses have said security forces are responsible demonstrators this week are commemorating 2019's bloody November, when hundreds were killed during popular protests spurred by rising fuel prices. In major cities across Iran, crowds called for an end to clerical rule and the removal of the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Meanwhile, Iran has sentenced at least five people to death. In connection with the protests. Amnesty International condemned the, quote, chilling use of the death penalty to further brutally quell the popular uprising, unquote. A human rights group says security forces have killed at least 348 people over the past two months of protests. Nearly 16,000 have been arrested. Russian missiles rained down on several parts of Ukraine overnight, including the capital Kyiv. At least four civilians were reportedly killed in Zaporizhia, and many more were injured in Russian strikes on Kharkiv, Dnipro, and Odessa. Ukrainian officials say Russia is continuing to target civilian infrastructure, disrupting supplies of water, electricity, and heat for millions of people as temperatures fall below freezing. The latest Russian attacks came as Ukrainian, Turkish and United Nations officials agreed to a 120-day extension of a deal to protect ships carrying grain exports out of Ukraine's Black Sea ports. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said Russian President Vladimir Putin has also approved the extension. Meanwhile, top Polish officials have blamed Russia for the deaths of two people near Poland's border with Ukraine after an air defense missile apparently fired by Ukraine fell onto their village Tuesday evening. Poland's ambassador to the UN addressed the Security Council Wednesday.
2: Those innocent people would uh, not have been killed if there had been no Russian war against Ukraine. The only fault was their only fault was the fact that they lived close to the civilian infrastructure on the Ukrainian side of the border, that Russia keeps attacking as military targets.
0: Here in Egypt, Ian Fry, the U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights in the Context of Climate Change, has met with Sanaa Saif, the sister of the imprisoned Egyptian writer and activist Alaa Abdel Fattah. After the meeting, Fry said Saif had expressed concern about possible reprisals after the COP was over. Meanwhile, Alaa's family is outside the Wedi El natroun prison today for their scheduled monthly visit. At the time of this broadcast, they were still waiting outside to be let in. It'll be the first time they see Alice since October. He was on hunger strike for over seven months. We'll keep you updated. Back in the United States, a federal judge has given the Biden administration a five-week transition period to end the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy, which has expelled over two million migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border without due process since 2020. Judge Emmett Sullivan had blocked the policy Tuesday, calling it arbitrary and capricious, but agreed on Wednesday to give the Biden administration until December 21st to end the program. A Senate investigation has confirmed immigrants who were held at the Irwin County Detention Center in Georgia endured excessive and unnecessary gynecological procedures, largely without their consent, and said immigration and customs enforcement ignored the abuses for years. The investigation was in response to dozens of disturbing reports from women detained at Irwin who were subjected to forced hysterectomies by Dr. Mahendra Ameem a local doctor known as the uterus collector, from 2017 to 2020. Amin was subpoenaed but invoked his Fifth Amendment right not to testify. He has not been criminally charged and continues to practice medicine in rural Georgia. On Wednesday, Georgia Democratic Senator John Ossoff grilled Stuart Smith, the ICE official in charge of medical care, over how his agency failed to stop the abuses.
3: What would you say to the women... Who went through this. Well, it's disheartening. It's, very it's disheartening. And it's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. And we, uh, any responsibility that we have, we take very seriously. We want to fix this system so it doesn't happen again. Uh, to Dr. The- Smith, you have full responsibility, we've established that. And this is worse than disheartening.
0: In more immigration news, over two dozen asylum seekers arrived in Philadelphia Wednesday on a bus sent by Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. A 10-year-old girl was immediately taken to the hospital with dehydration and high fever after the arduous journey. Immigrant justice advocates in Philadelphia welcome the asylum seekers with coats, blankets, food and other resources and will provide temporary shelter. The families came from Colombia, Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Advocates report they were often given false information to lure them onto the buses from Texas and other Republican-led states. In California, the long-serving Democratic Congress member Karen Bass has become the first woman to be elected mayor of Los Angeles. Bass beat back real estate mogul Rick Caruso, who spent over $100 million of his own fortune on his losing campaign. Among other issues, Bass has promised to address the housing crisis in L.A., where some 70,000 people go unhoused every day. Bass, who will be just the second black mayor of Los Angeles, will also have to contend with the racism crisis at LA City Council, unleashed by the leak of an audio recording in which three members made racist remarks about black and indigenous people. The National Labor Relations Board's asking a federal court to immediately issue a nationwide cease and desist order blocking Starbucks from continuing to fire employees who are involved in union efforts. According to Starbucks Workers United, the coffee. Chain Giant, has illegally fired at least 150 workers in retaliation for organizing. And the longtime water protector, Joy Braun, died Sunday at her home in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. She was just 53 years old. A citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux tribal nation, Braun was at the Sacred Stone Resistance Camp since the first day of the protest at Standing Rock. She was also a nonviolent direct action organizer and policy advocate who trained hundreds of people over the years for the Indigenous Environmental Network. This is Joy at a protest outside the White House last year. You need to be held accountable. You made promises to the Indigenous communities across this land that you were going to uphold, but you haven't upheld those promises. You've been speaking with a forked tongue, just like. That one, that was before you. We'll talk more about Joy Braun in our first segment. To see our interviews with her at democracynow.org and coverage of the fight over the Dakota Access Pipeline, visit our website, again, democracynow.org. Coming up, we'll speak with two people who knew her well, who are here continuing the struggle at the U.N. Climate Summit. Stay with us. And music played today to open the People's Plenary here at COP27. Yes, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We are broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el Sheikh, Egypt. Hundreds of people, including climate activists, indigenous people, workers, human rights activists, and environmental defenders gathered today for the People's Plenary at COP27 just before we began this broadcast. They signed on to a People's Declaration for Climate Justice that includes demands for the decolonization of economies and societies, the repaying of climate debt, and the defense of 1.5 degrees Celsius by reducing emissions to zero by 2030. The statement ends with a call for the release of the imprisoned Egyptian technologist, writer and activist Ala Abdel Fattah and all other prisoners of conscience. After the plenary ended, hundreds marched in protest outside the plenary hall. I'm Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now! We're outside the U.N. COP plenary. We've just come from a people's plenary, where hundreds of people gathered to call for justice and sign off on a statement. The foreign minister of Egypt just passed by. Part of the statement was calling for freedom for the political prisoner, Allah Abdel Fattah, and other political prisoners held in Egypt. Behind us, they're linking climate justice and Human rights, they are shouting, What do we want? Shut it down. We're calling for climate justice for defense of land, air, and sea. Well, as we continue to cover the UN Climate Summit, we spend the hour with indigenous activists and land defenders across the Americas. We begin with two guests. Tom Goldtooth is executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. He's a member of the Diné and Dakota Nations and lives in Bemidji, Minnesota. He also happens to be the father of a Hollywood star. That's Dallas Goldtooth, if you watch Reservation Dogs. Also with us is Ariel Cic- Uh, It's Equi Deranger. She is a member of the Athabasca Chippewaian First Nation and the Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action. Tom and Ariel, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you both back. Ariel, let's begin with you. Um, I was sitting at the front of this People's Plenary today. You were right there in the front. Um, And this is as we come to the end of this two-week climate summit. You have been to so many in the past for at least a decade. What are your biggest concerns right now.
1: I think the reality is is that the people's plenary has become a place for us to voice our concerns about the hypocrisy and the the hypocrisy of what's happening within the negotiations. The COPs have become a corporate playground as, a, as opposed to a place to come to agreements to address a global climate crisis. We are sidelining human rights, indigenous rights, or and the environment to advance instead corporate false solutions. And so we have to come forward and continue to stand in these spaces and demand more mm As Indigenous peoples, we've been advocating for an alarm bell on climate change, for solutions that address the history of colonialism, violence on our lands and territories. And instead of those solutions driving the the discourse, the negotiations, we're seeing corporations putting forward false solutions that further
0: entrench us into capitalism and colonialism. Loss and damage. Uh, These are the words that if you go to any of the grassroots, ROOTS ORGANIZATIONS THAT ARE HERE the first three words out of their mouths. What exactly does it mean, and how seriously um, is this being taken by the countries that are involved with these negotiations? I think that's a really good question. When it
1: comes to loss and damage, for our communities, we have seen 500 years of colonialism in North America, in Turtle Island, and we have seen the loss and damages to our territories, to our cultures, to our lifeways. And this isn't just something that's in Turtle Island. This is across the planet. It is frontline communities, land defenders and indigenous peoples that have experienced the loss of our lands and territories at the hands of oil and gas and extractivism. And countries have made promises, all of these big fancy words and promises to address these loss and damages, but how far back are they going? What do these commitments look like? And who is responsible for those loss and damages? And who is to receive them? Is it states that receive them from other states? How are we to ensure that there is direct resources to the communities that have experienced these loss and damages, as opposed to just new mechanisms for states to take and to further
0: entrench our communities into more loss and damages in our homelands? Tom Goldtooth, uh, you were right there at the People's Plenary, and you've been there for decades at these UN Climate Mm -hmm. Summits. Some of the young activists were born after the COPs began. Um, What do you think of what has been accomplished at this point, and what do you want to see happen?
4: Well, one of the the very important uh, terminologies that uh, we organized uh, around for this COP is the latest IPCC 6 report that mentions colonialism as a major factor to be considered as we uh, address uh, the climate crisis. And that's very important as we look at colonialism, but also the colonialism that represents the financial institutions. Colonialism that has affected the inability of world leaders, after the 27th year of coming back, to really seriously address keeping fossil fuels in the ground. That's the elephant in the room that has been the issue. You know, so with a lot of other uh, progress that we have had and been part of as indigenous peoples, the big issue still is uh, is making a commitment to. Uh, you know, have a global initiative to meet that Paris agreement of a threshold of 1.5 Celsius. And we're, we're, the world is not on track. The United States is way off. Countries, industrialized countries are way off. So that's, uh, that's what I see is the big issue. And colonialism has to be addressed in these hallways. And there's been lack of political will around that
0: colonialism, often seen uh, on people's bumper stickers, Mm CO2-lianism, colonialism. Um, Tom, the U.S. climate envoy, John Kerry, the former presidential candidate and senator, a few weeks ago at The New York Times said that loss and damage means liability and compensation, which is why they can't deal with it. But there's been a lot of pushback, and he's changed what he has said somewhat. You're from the United States, but also sovereign nations in the United States—the Diné, the Navajo, and the Dakota mm-hmm. people. Um, what does that mean to you, um, for reservations, for um, for nations, Indigenous nations, in the United States?
4: A couple of days ago, I was uh, fortunate to uh, to be at a meeting to where John Kerry sat on my left, and we we kind of knocked elbows to sat
0: on your lap?
4: On my left.
0: Oh on your left? Yeah. L E F T. <laughs> well I don't
4: know if it would have been appropriate for him to sit on my lap. But he, he was on my left and we we're able to exchange a couple notes together and he took he took of concern the issues that I brought up about uh, the continued issue around domestic issues of Getting appropriations to address climate issues it 's not just an adaptation however issue it 's mitigation. How do we prevent our our situation as American Indian and Alaska native tribes to be able to positive look positively look to our future? It concerns food sovereignty it concerns and in, in fact access to our lands that have been lost through 371 treaties that have been violated by the United States. How do we get those lands back? And how do we protect our ecosystems, our biodiversity? Not through market mechanisms, which is a major mitigation plan of the United States, such as 30 by 30. Uh, conservation biodiversity offsets are carbon market offsets uh, that do not cut emissions at source, by the way, and they're just a mechanism to allow the polluters off the hook so that they can go carbon neutral but not cut their emissions at source. So this is a major issue with us that I addressed to John as far as one of the climate reparation issues that we need to address as uh, native First Nation peoples As American Indian tribes in the US. And he said he would get back to me and we would have uh, uh, meetings on it. He did say that they are looking at mechanisms to prevent safeguards, to create safeguards to prevent those things I mentioned. But we're versed on that too uh, around how safeguards are not really an adequate mechanism to address keeping fossil fuels in the ground. Mm.
0: You've been critical of the Inflation Reduction Act. Many felt um, at least it got some money toward renewable technologies. What's your
4: concern? Well, definitely in America, we need jobs. We need to look at different... uh, methods of uh, diversity and economic development and indigenous peoples and tribes we 're there we 're willing to to meet and to work out things. We have an indigenous just transition initiative that looks at that, but the problem with this this act is that it puts millions of dollars into fault solutions. For an example, in Department of Agriculture there's legislation that's already been couched that allows climate-smart agriculture that puts the soil into a carbon market system of carbon sequestration. Again, this is part of a market system that does not cut emissions at source, and it also beefs up research and mechanisms to bring geoengineering now as a solution for mitigating climate and a lot of that those technologies have been a violation of the, of the uh, spiritual teachings that we have as indigenous peoples on carbon markets bringing air into a market system to where it's a property right issue, where they have to define whose property right is carbon before they can trade it as a commodity, that's a violation of the sacred. So how do we reconcile as indigenous people living in a system, let alone our own self, participating in a false system like that, to where the repercussions are very serious to us, for one thing, that does not address the climate issue.
0: So, uh, Arielle Deranger, uh, in Canada, Justin Trudeau did not come here, President Biden did. What is happening in Canada around pipeline politics, around overall energy, when it comes to the First Nations? You know, from my perspective, it, what it appears is
1: that the Canadian government is creating a lot of flowery languages, a lot of promises that feel empty and devoid of actual critical mechanisms for implementation and, um, and holding them to accountable to their promises. Promises. Instead, what we're seeing from the actual government when it comes to action on climate is they're continuing to try to push dirty pipelines like the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which is a tar sands pipeline that delivers tar sands from my territory in Treaty 8 to the coast and off to international markets. We're seeing the continued expansion of the Alberta tar sands with plans not to even begin to uh, to, to slow down until after 2030. This isn't a just transition. This is not a strategy that addresses. climate, and it's not a strategy that addresses Indigenous rights. And Canada is hedging all of its bets on things like false solutions, carbon markets, Indigenous protected and conservation areas to offset their emissions that does nothing as Tom says, to cut emissions at source. Instead, what it does is it allows these corporations to continue business as usual. For me, that means that my territory continues to be ravaged by the Alberta tar sands. Our waterways, our animals, our species are continuing to decline in quality and health our peoples are not even able to hunt our bison anymore there's no protection for our species because business is more important the question that I've heard pop up here in the hallways is who are we even trying to save the planet for anymore? It doesn't seem like it's for our people and and our species and our relatives, but it's for corporations so they can continue to have a bottom line of billions of dollars to appease
0: their shareholders. I wanted to turn to someone who so deeply cared about all of these issues, like both of you. Someone you both know very well, the longtime water protector Joy Braun, who Mm -hmm. died Sunday at her home in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. At the age of 53, citizen of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Nation, organizer for Tom's Indigenous Environmental Network at the Sacred Stone Resistance Camp since the first day of the protest at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is Joy Braun on Democracy Now! last year. We need to unite together to let this administration know that we are serious. And, you know, we're tired. We, we go to all the hearings, we do the petitions, we make the phone calls, and it's not working.
4: They're still allowing pipelines to go through illegally. Dakota Access Pipeline is still an illegal pipeline. And, of course, they did not do a full EIS on
0: Line 3, and they're ignoring treaty rights on Line 5 and Mountain Valley Pipeline. So, that was Joy Braun last year. Uh, Tom Goldtooth, she, she worked with you at the Indigenous Environmental Network. Talk about—we were interviewing her when she was in Washington. What were you doing there?
4: Well, you know, we have a, we have a campaign to lift up uh, the issues around fossil fuels. We have a campaign lifting up that we have solutions like, in, like our uh, indigenous principles of Just Transition. So this was an issue we needed to lift up the whole contradiction of the U.S. continuing business as usual with fossil fuels. And so she was there as our pipeline organizer. And part of her role is to network and bring together all the different front lines dealing with pipelines. And uh, she definitely, she was our, our warrior woman. But she has such love and compassion for the people and for Mother Earth. and. We're still devastated, you know, in this loss. We were here, and when we heard about it, I got I got woken up in the middle of the night, our time, and it was her daughter, Morgan, um, Brings Plenty, who found her, and she's working with us in the media area, too. So, uh, you know, it's, it's it was a setback, definitely. But, you know, in many ways, she was one of those type of women that said, You've got to go on. You've got to fight the fight. Be strong, you know, and this is hard work, especially as indigenous peoples fighting for a long history of uh, colonialism, fighting for our land and our rights, our food system. She was always that person and close to her family. You know, a lot of people don't know her beloved uh, a puppy dog passed away just a matter of days after when, oh. uh, when, when she passed away. But she gives hope to us. We had a big gathering here and a lot of people here globally came to honor her memory. Uh, And we had uh, prayer and song from all cultures. And and it's part of the movement building that we're experiencing here at this COP that, that continues on from Glasgow, civil society coming together.
0: Ariel, I give you the final words on Joy Braun. Yeah,
1: I think I just want to say and honor her memory that she came up to our territory as a part of one of Indigenous Climate Action's land camps, uh, where we were bringing together land defenders and pipeline defenders coming to our territories. And she really brought so much spirit, and she really lived up to her name as Joy and really brought us together to really galvanize us from her experiences in Standing Rock. And she brings that spirit
0: here now, even though she can't be with us. Well, Ariel tsekwe Deranger, Executive Director of Indigenous Climate Action. She lives in Edmonton, Alberta, in Canada. And Tom Goldtooth, Executive Director of Indigenous Environmental Network. He lives usually in Bemidji, Minnesota, but they are both here at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Well, earlier this week, on Wednesday, the Brazilian president-elect, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, spoke. He pledged to recommit Brazil to tackling the climate crisis as he replaces far-right president Jair Bolsonaro.
3: The planet warns all of us of the time that we need each other to survive. Alone, we are vulnerable to climate tragedies. However, we ignore these alerts. We spend trillions of dollars on wars that bring destruction and death, while 900 million people in the world don't have something to eat. No one is safe. Climate emergency affects everyone, although its effects affect more vulnerable people. Inequality between the rich and the poor manifests itself even in the efforts to reduce effects of climate change. Dear companions, there's no climate security for the world without a protected Amazon. We will spare no efforts to have zero deforestation and the degradation of our biomes by
5: 2030.
3: We are going to rigorously punish those responsible for any illegal activity, whether it's mining, gold digging, wood extraction, or agricultural occupation. These crimes affect mostly the indigenous people. That is why we will create the Ministry of Indigenous People so that indigenous people present to the government policies that guarantee them their survival, security, peace and sustainability. The second initiative is to put forward Brazil as a host for COP30 in 2025. We will be increasingly assertive in the face of the challenges of climate change, We will be aligned to the compromises made in Paris and driven by the quest for decarbonization of the global economy.
0: That's Brazilian President-elect Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva speaking at the UN Climate Summit here in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. The former president is due to take office January when he will replace Brazil's far-right President Jair Bolsonaro who oversaw major deforestation of the Amazon and deregulation of extractive industries as indigenous environmental leaders and also journalists were systematically killed and attacked. Nearly 60 percent of the Amazon rainforest falls within Brazil's borders, and its future depends in part on the direction President-elect Lula takes. As Democracy Now! broadcasts from COP27 here in Egypt, on Tuesday, we spoke about this and more with Gregorio Mirabal coordinator of the Indigenous Organizations of the Amazon Basin, or COICA. He's an indigenous leader from the Venezuelan Amazon and one of the highest-profile people from the Amazon at this summit. His colleague, atosa saltani interpreted for him. She's the director of global strategy for the Amazon Sacred Headwaters Initiative, founder and board president of Amazon Watch. I asked Gregorio Mirabal what he is calling for here at COP27.
6: Bueno, en primer lugar, agradecer a ustedes por darnos esta voz y que nos puedan ver para poder decir nuestros sueños y aspiraciones.
7: First, I want to thank you for giving us this opportunity to share with you our our dreams, our visions, and our aspirations.
6: Estamos aquí porque el año pasado en Glasgow nos prometieron apoyo financiero, técnico y político y hemos regresado aquí a Egipto porque queremos ver cómo se va a implementar esas promesas y esas acciones a partir de ahora porque ya ha pasado un año y no se han cumplido los objetivos.
7: We're here because last year in Glasgow, a lot of promises were made to support indigenous peoples, uh, technically, financially, and politically, towards the implementation of this action. We are back here uh, working to make sure that there's implementation of those promises. So far, there hasn't been progress.
6: Y hemos dicho nuevamente...
7: Once again, we're here to say that the Amazon is reaching a point of no return. We announced that last year, and we're here again, saying that the Amazon needs urgent action. And we, indigenous peoples, are bringing forth solutions. Scientists agree that indigenous peoples are doing the best job as protectors of the forest. And that indigenous solutions need to be supported. So, once again, we're here to demand the technical, political, and financial support that we need to continue to protect our forest and avoid the tipping point.
0: The significance of the Atabapo River, which now sits at the tri border of Brazil, Colombia, and Venezuela.
6: Hey. eh, Where I
7: live, where I come from, is the union of four important rivers, the Atahuapo, the Huayna, the Rio Negro, and the Orinoco. This conjunction, this confluence of these rivers are one of the largest confluences within the Amazon basin. And they flow, these rivers eventually flow to the Amazon. It was NASA who uh, discovered that the deserts in the Sahara of Africa bring much needed nutrients and are connected to the Amazon basin and feed the Amazon basin, then the Amazon basin creates flying rivers that feed the world, that are vital for the planet. So we are here to say that these four rivers are vital for the future of life on on the planet.
6: Porque eh, la Amazonía es un ser vivo que se conecta a nivel mundial.
0: One of these major Amazon countries, Brazil, has a new leader, uh, Lula, um, Luís Inácio Lula da Silva. He will be president again. Uh, and he's also at this summit, like you are, Gregorio. I'm wondering if you can talk about his significance and what happened to the Amazon under the Brazilian president, Bolsonaro. The
7: importance of having Lula here is that we are seeing a political shift. Lula, in his election, had committed to support us, support indigenous people, support biodiversity, support the future of the rainforest, and that this is— uh, with Lula's support, we can fight against deforestation and support indigenous peoples in protecting and confronting the threats they face, including assassinations and human rights violations.
6: La política de Bolsonaro, estaba destruyendo la
7: Bolsonaro was bent on the destruction of the Amazon. On Under his leadership, we saw an increase in deforestation and we saw an increase in human rights violation for all of the indigenous peoples, Bolsonaro put at risk the entire Amazon basin, as well as all of humanity. With Lula coming into office, we are hopeful that he will, uh, he will follow through with his promises to protect the Amazon and to avoid a tipping point and to help indigenous peoples protect their territories.
0: You're from the area that is known as Venezuela. Uh, what is your assessment of Maduro, the president of Venezuela, and uh, his treatment of indigenous people and the Amazon region?
6: Bueno, in eh, los últimos años.
7: The last four years, I've been focused on all of the Amazon basin, but what I can tell you that the big threats to the Venezuelan Amazon are deforestation and illegal mining, and that for years this has been uh, increasing. The rate of deforestation has been increasing, um, however, recently President Petro of Colombia has managed to convince President Maduro to come back to the negotiations here at COP, to step up into his commitment to protect the forest, to join the efforts of Lula, Petro and uh, the world in protecting the Amazon. And hopefully that's not just a promise, and that it is actually what ends up happening, because we are we are urgently needing for this to happen.
0: Can you talk about the most powerful corporations, um, what they're doing to the Amazon, and also this whole issue of loss? and damage um UN speak for reparations by the wealthiest most polluting countries the US is the historically largest uh, greenhouse gas emitter in the world uh, China the largest current greenhouse gas emitter what is their responsibility to the amazon and what can they do to repair it
6: Salvar la Amazonía in este momento
7: Saving the Amazon is going to cost billions of dollars, a lot of money. However, when you consider that the amount of money spent in the Ukraine-Russia war, it's equivalent to about three days of what we're spending in that war to save the Amazon. However, there are also irreversible damages, irreversible loss happening to the Amazon. Uh, And this is caused by a lot of petroleum drilling, by monoculture. A cattle ranching and gold, these irrepa- irreversible harms, irreparable harms, uh, are being our responsibility of big countries like China, Russia, the United States, and that they need to take responsibility for restoring and repairing the harm they're creating in the Amazon.
0: Can you talk about what it means to be an indigenous land defender? Uh, Latin America is the deadliest place for environmentalists like you. Um, How do you both defend the land and defend yourselves?
6: In this
0: moment,
7: we're calling for the ratification of the Escazú agreement. This agreement would help to prevent assassinations and persecution of indigenous land defenders. Right now, to be a defender of the forest in Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, or Brazil, it is really literally accepting a death sentence. What we're seeing, in many cases, indigenous peoples have been charged with lawsuits, have been basically sued, and are facing criminal charges. For example, the leader of the indigenous peoples of Ecuador, Leonida Isa, has 16 Uh, cases, 16 charges against him. And so, for leaders in the Amazon, we have to protect their life and their ability to be defenders. In each day, two indigenous leaders are assassinated in the Amazon basin, and this has to change.
0: Gregorio Mirabal, uh, Indigenous climate activist from the Venezuelan Amazon, coordinator of COICA, that is the indigenous organizations of the Amazon Basin. Coming up, we hear from more indigenous land defenders from Central America, from Guatemala and Mexico. Stay with us.
5: Honaibu bububatan eskau ashunkayau eskau ashunkayau eskau ashunkayau
0: President-elect of the Huniquai Federation, in the Brazilian state of Acre. He was performing today, praying today uh, at the People's Plenary. Uh, just an hour before we went to broadcast, to see our interview with him at the COP in Lima, Peru, several years ago, go to democracynow.org. Yes, this is Democracy Now! We're broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. I'm Amy Goodman. We end today with two indigenous land defenders from Latin America. Andrea Ishu is a Maya Kiche leader, journalist, human rights and environmental defender from Guatemala. Also with us, Rosa Marina Flores Cruz, an indigenous activist and organizer from the Isthmus of Tehuantepec in the state of Oaxaca, Mexico. They both traveled to COP27 with the collective Futuros Indígenas, Indigenous Futures. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Andrea, let's begin with you. Um, The significance of what's taking place today, we just heard— from the uh, representative of the Amazon talking about Venezuela, Brazil, the lungs of the planet. We don't as often hear from indigenous defenders in Central America. Talk about why you're here.
8: Well, we're here because we are also wanting to talk about what means the the energy transition to our territories. In the name of a green transition and the creation of renewable energies, Guatemala and the territories of Central America are suffering a lot of exploration. Of our lands and our territories. A lot of this green capitalism is affecting our communities, is displacing people, is creating violence, corruption, and also is perpetuating the genocide and the ecocide in Guatemala and in our territories. And what's your experience been like here at COP27 in Egypt? Well, we we do know that uh, the expectations about the rich and the powerful, you know, giving solutions to the climate crisis is not our horizon. We're here to create connections between the grassroots movements, because the real climate solutions are going to be built by the ones that are very close to Earth, right down below, not from the people on the top. We're here also to make clear to the decision makers that we're not going to allow that all this green pollution is coming to our territories. We're saying to them that we will not allow it, that we will resist. And we're here looking a lot of hypocrisy. A lot of the negotiators of the big oil companies coming here and being listening and participating in the negotiations while the indigenous and young activists are being put out from these places for protesting and for demanding, you know, fair trade and just transition from the fossil fuel industry. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy inside of this space. We're very disappointed in the way that they are trying to create a very, you know, illusion of multicultural space for dialogue, but it's not true. There's a lot of rules for us. We cannot do protests, we cannot do mobilizations, and there's a lot of repression in this society. So we're coming here and looking at these conferences, and we already knew that the solutions for the climate crisis are not coming from here.
0: Andrea, I was wondering if you can link the U.S. relationship with Guatemala to the issue of climate devastation in your country. 1953, the U.S. supports a coup against uh, Mohammad Mosaddegh in Iran. 1954, one year later, uh, John Foster Dulles, the secretary of state—he was a corporate attorney for United Fruit. Is involved in the overthrow of the democratically elected leader of Guatemala, um, uh, Jacobo Arbenz. How does that relate to what we're seeing today?
8: The United States had financed a very long history of genocide and ecocide in Guatemala. And also the protection of the monocultive industry and destructive industry. There's a lot of corporate business related to the U.S. in Guatemala. And also the U.S. policies are financing our government to keep and remain the war against the indigenous peoples and communities that are defending the land, the rivers, or ways of living and existing. So there is a very long and nasty relationship from these private corporations, from the U.S. government uh, with the corrupt authoritarian regime in Guatemala that at this very moment is uh, putting into exile activists, judges, journalists, and they are keep financing that extermination of our territories and our lands. So what are you demanding? We are demanding that the, the money is not going to solve. The problems of green colonialism in our territories. We are demanding to the United States government to stop financing the extermination of indigenous peoples in Guatemala.
0: Hmm. Rosa Marina Flores Cruz is with us from Oaxaca, from the southern state of Mexico. Talk about your concerns about the climate as you come here to COP27. Yes well as as part of the delegation of defenders of the earth
2: we try to bring the the voices and the demands of different Indigenous nations in our country. Uh, we are here, people like me in my region. We are living the impact of the windmills that are grabbing the lands and dispossessing the territories of the indigenous binisa and Icots in our region. Uh, this green energy is selling is here is being discussed is discussed here like a solution, and we are in our territories confronting the. Uh, how the organized organized crime is really close to to the companies and to the governments who are deciding deciding that uh, this is the solution and we need to take it in our territories and give them our space for them to make more money. Also, uh, there is people in our delegation who is facing the. Um, Deforestation, deforestation of their lands uh, to be to create MONOCULTIVES for avocados and for other kind of grow of crops. Like selling, also this idea that the vegetables are the solution about the climate crisis, and they are dispossessing the lands of the indigenous communities. We are facing dams. We are facing a lot of mega projects that are putting in risk our lives, and that's why we are here to say that uh, as indigenous people. Uh, we have to. We need to be respect our decisions and our agency. We are totally able to decide what we want in our lands and in our territory. And the decisions not just come uh, must come only only from the upside. We uh, we need to be heard and
0: we need to be respect. Your father is from an Afro community yes. in Mexico. Yes. Your mother from the Isthmus of. Uh, want pack, if you can talk about how your heritage informs your climate activism. Yes. Well, yes, my, my dad, he is from
2: Quahiniquilapa, from the small coast, <laughs> Costa Chica, in Guerrero. Uh, but I grew up in my indigenous community. I grew up in Juchitán. My mom, my grandma before her, uh, they will be like the, the how the people outside call activists <laughs> since ever. So, uh, they, they always uh, had been fighting for, for the lands and for the respect of the, the rights of the community for, uh, the respect of the indigenous communities. Uh, That's—there is where my, my heritage come. So, since I born, I always have known that I must defend my land, and I must be really proud about who I am. And let's
0: talk about how dangerous that activism is. A report from the nonprofit Global Witness this year revealed that Mexico saw 54 environmental and land defenders killed in 2021, making it one of the most dangerous places in the world to be a climate activist. I mean, in our headlines through this year, every other week it seemed we were reporting on um, a Mexican journalist, for example, who was also killed. Talk about what the stakes are in Mexico. Yes,
2: just the last week was murder. Another defender of the of the forest. In the center of Mexico, uh, defend the land is one of the most difficult and uh, dangerous activities that we can do. My own family, we have to leave our region for six months uh, several years ago uh, because of the fight of my mom against the windmill projects. So, and also in our in our network, we have uh, compañeras who are being now arrested. Uh, yes, arrested. Persecuted, persecuted uh, for her work in defense of the land and and against pip pipelines and against uh, the, these mega projects that the, the government of Mexico is pushing in
0: our territory. What are these mega projects?
2: The Maya train, like, is this big tourist, touristic project that they are like again they are putting the indigenous people, the Maya indigenous people, as as objects for the tourism and they are building this big train that is going to to cross to turn out all the Peninsula of Yucatan. Also, we have the interoceanic Train in in my region, in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, that is like a, another Panama Canal that they want to build, uh, like in the in the in the ground. And for us, that we are already living the impacts of the mega projects. And for the, uh, the other company, uh, the other compañera, she is dealing with the pipeline, the uh, Proyecto Integral Morelos, that is been at uh, Trying to be built in the in the in in the in a volcano, so it's really dangerous for them as communities to have these kind of projects. And the government is just giving more and more impulse to
0: these kind of, of things. And finally, Andrea, as you talk about Guatemala, um, if you can talk about the and name names, and it's something you pointed out at the beginning. Here at COP, people should understand that you cannot name names and protests of countries, of individuals, of corporations, if anyone thought the protest is free. And it's not just because it's in Egypt. It happens every year. You can have a protest, but not talk about the country you're talking about. As we wrap up, Specifically, talk about what you're facing in Guatemala when it comes to mega projects.
8: We're talking about a big business, for example, the CGN Proniquel Maya company that is exterminating the Maya Kekchi population. Just yesterday, a very big group of indigenous Maya Kekchi people was arrested because this company is forcing them to display and displacing them from their lands just to keep building this big mining company that is going to be for the extraction of minerals for the energetic transition also the big mega projects, as dams that are financed by the president of the Real Madrid, Florentino Pérez, who is owning one of the biggest hydroelectrical dams in Guatemala, the Proyecto that that is right now creating the prosecution and criminalization of several members of the Mayakichi uh, communities. In my territory, the, the interest of big capital to deforester, deforestate, our communal ancestral land, is also growing. So there is a lot of private corporate business that are trying to see that are seeing our territories as profit, as money, and not as the living systems that means for us and that we have, you know, uh, take care for thousands of years and that has allowed us to live and also allow to have the climate solutions because the climate solutions are already here. The climate solutions are in the ancestral science of indigenous communities and knowledges. So we're demanding that to be respected.
0: I want to thank you both so much for being with us, Andrea Ixhu, Maya K'iche, journalist and activist from Guatemala, Rosa Marina Flores Cruz, indigenous activist from Oaxaca, Mexico, both with the collective Futuros Indígenas, that's Indigenous Futures here at the U.N. climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. And now for an update about the case of Ala Abdel Fattah. His family visited with him today in the Wedi El Natrun prison. His sister Mona Saif, who was not there today, tweeted, ''The news from the visit is not good. Ala suffered a lot in this last period, but at least they saw him, and he needed to see them very much.'' The family says they'll share more details later this afternoon. We'll tweet them out, and we'll have more on Alec's case on Friday's program. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez will be giving a speech Friday at the Columbia School of Journalism, reflecting on his 40 years of fighting for racial and social justice in journalism. It begins at 4.10 p.m. Friday. See democracynow.org for details on this event and two other speeches Juan is giving. Special thanks to Sharif Produced Honey Masood, Dennis Moynihan, Nermeen Sheikh, Aaron Sharmal Sheikh, Democracy Now! Produced with Renee Felsmay, Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.